following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Anyway, the name of my sermon today is, Whose Side Are You On? Whose Side Are You On? Now, I know what you're going to interpret that in your mind, but I think you're going to find that we're going to have a little twist and turn here. And uh, I'm going to be taking my scripture pretty much out of uh, 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter. And there's going to be some curveballs there, too. Bear with me. And what I want you to know is a lot of times when I come up with a sermon, I come up with a sermon because of experiences that I've gone through that particular week or previous months. And those become the the ingredients for what I feel I'm supposed to talk about. So maybe you can tell if I've had a great week or a bad week by what I preach. I don't know. But I want to give you a little bit of background before we go into this sermon. And I want to share with you when I had just graduated from high school and I went off to Bible college. And for me, Bible college was a great experience. I grew up in Indiana, moved to Illinois, and then when it was time to go to college, I went to Lincoln Christian College. And I met so many fantastic people there. I mean, these were really great people, and they, they changed my life. I also met a, a young lady there named Gail Denise Smith, who is now Gail Denise Silkwood. And I decided that she's one of the best of the best, so I married her and drug her over here. Okay, so next month, February 20th, we will have been married 29 years. <laughs> Now, actually, she needs a trophy for that. You, you know, those of you that know me that know that's true. But, you know, I had lots of great relationships with people that I went to college with. And some of those relationships were so powerful because you, you begin to grow together with people. And some of those people are very key to your life. They change your life. There were people in my life from Lincoln Christian College that wanted with all their heart to follow the Lord. And those are the people that came alongside you and prodded you when you're ready to give up. They say, you can't give up. You know, that's not what it's about. It's about the kingdom. And, you know, these people would prod you on. Now, you know what I mean. you got people in your life here. you got people in your life back in your home country that just really, when they're around them, you just feel like you're filled up. You're bubbling over. They're the kind of people you like. Then you got another kind of people kind of people that it's like, it's like every time you see them, they plug into you and you feel drained. You know what I mean? You see them coming in close to you, they, they got their eyes locked on you, and all you can think about is, oh no, we made eye contact. I'm stuck. Okay? And you know, you're going to get drained. And I was thinking about this, and, and it dawned on me that my experience that would, would best illustrate this was this past week riding my bicycle. I get up at 5 in the morning. Gail said I'm insane. And I ride a bicycle 25 kilometers. Okay, that's the only way I get this perfect physique. No comments are allowed here. Thank you very much. Okay? Just think what it would be like if I didn't do that. And so I take off and ride this bike. And I warm up. And then I ride as hard as I can for 5 kilometers nonstop. And this particular day, I felt like I was going to die. I'm going, man, I'm just out of, I'm out of juice, man. I just, no, you got to keep it up. So I got to my five-kilometer spot. I stopped. I drank some water. 
And I'm going, okay. <laughs> you know, some days are good in exercise, and some days are not so good, and some days are terrible. Well, that day was not so good. I thought it was terrible, but it couldn't even come close to the next morning when I got up and I rode, and it was worse. And I thought, there's something wrong with me. I mean, I could barely get to 21 kilometers an hour, and that's not even slow cruising speed for me. So I'm going, I'm starting to think, son, you've got some serious health issues here. So I get to my five-kilometer point, and I get off my bike, and I get a drink of water, and I thought, novel thought, maybe it's not you. Maybe there's something wrong with your bike. You know, it really helped to find out if you've got air in your back tire. I mean, I reached back and I grabbed that front tire and it was nice and hard. I thought, yeah, that feels like about 50 pounds is where I like him. Reached around for that back tire and it's, mm-hmm, and I'm going, that's probably not over 12. <laughs> have you ever ridden a bicycle without any air in the tires? If you want an experience, look, all you have to do is ride five kilometers. You've got 25 in, in, in energy put out, okay? So I carry a little pump, so I pumped her up and I got myself home. And that evening, I uh, patched my tire, and the next day was a little bit better. Okay. The point of my story is, people are like tires. You're going to find some that are overinflated. And if you've ever, if you've ever ridden a bicycle, a mountain bike, or, or a road bike, and you've got an overinflated tire, those nasty little rocks can do amazing things to overinflated tires. And once they go boom, guess what? That's not going to be the last boom you hear or feel. Uh, the last time that happened in America, I was over my handlebars. And all I could think about as I'm going upside down and flying is, this is a brand new bicycle. <laughs> costs about $1,000. Boom. And then as soon as I hit the concrete, I realized that I didn't care about my bicycle at that point in time. <laughs> Other people are people where you don't have enough air in the tire or it's like your tire has a leak. And... And you're always having to pump it up. Now, have you ever noticed if you got a leaky tire on a bicycle? Not only is it a pain because you can't get it to move well, but you got to stop every once in a while and pump that stupid thing up. And if you got a hand pump like I do that's about that long, you're, you know, and it takes forever to get the tire up, you're pouring sweat, and you're just doing it so you can get the silly thing home. Well, people are like that. There's people that are sort of like a little tiny nail that's hit that tire, and all the time you're riding, that air's going out, and it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher. In some relationships, you put everything into, and you get very little out of. But we always look for those relationships, don't we, where it's that perfectly inflated tire. And you can ride. It's got good traction. It's got good economy, too. Have you ever thought of that? For every little bit of energy you put into it because it's correct, it's right, you get the maximum economy out of it. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the time that we were in college because I want to tell you about one of these people. And, of course, you know what kind of person I'm going to tell you about. This one was overinflated, but instead of exploding, it developed a leak. So you were always trying to keep the relationship going. And this guy showed up at a college Bible study. Didn't know where he came from. Long red hair, great big red beard, and his name was Jeff. And he announced to me, he got right in my face, he said, my name's Huck. And he was the life of the party, at least he thought he was. 
Huck was the guy that when he walked in the door, if he hadn't seen you, you walk out the back door. He latched a hold of me, and I could never shake him. And you know those kind of people, because after a while, you sort of start to like them. You know, it's like, oh, no, here he comes again. Okay, it's okay, okay, you know, he's really a nice guy. Huck was interesting, because he came to came and we got to become pretty good friends. And One day he was talking and he said, yeah, he said, he worked for Harker's Meats. Does anyone know who Harker's is? They run those refrigerated trucks full of meat and they sell to uh, restaurants and you can order the meat and they'll deliver it to your home to put in your freezer. And he said, I'm Harker's Meats Golden Boy. And he's from the south, he's from Texas. He said, I'm Harker's Meats Golden Boy. I can do nothing wrong. They love me. And he's going on and on and on about how great he was. The next day I saw him, and he dropped by the campus, and I said, what's wrong, Hucky? His face was down. He said, Harker's fired me. (laughs) And I realized he thought he was Harker's Meats Golden Boy, but actually Harker's Meats thought that he was fool's gold. They didn't get much out of him. He was high maintenance. In the economy of a company... That just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. One more story about old Huck, because I think in the end it's going to illustrate some things for us. Gil and I left Lincoln, Illinois. I graduated and and came to Thailand and later on went back. We got married and worked out here. We went back and we were moving into media, and so I was working on a film. And so we moved to Joplin, Missouri to work with an outfit to make this film. It was a health film. And lo and behold, one day we're at home, and this nice custom van pulls up in the driveway. And this guy with long red hair and a great big beard steps out. And I'm going, oh my gosh, it's Huck. <laughs> and he had a wife. And so he walks up to the door and, you know, wow, what are you doing here? We, we want to drive up and see you. Drive up and see me. He lived 360 miles away. He drove up to drop by for a visit for a round trip of 720 miles and didn't even tell us he was coming. Gee, nice to see you, Huck. Well, they were going to stay with us, right? Except we told them, they said, well, yeah, we got plenty of spare rooms. It's not a problem. The only problem is when they saw the spare rooms, they're going, well, um, we, we, we don't sleep on queen-size beds. We, we only are comfortable on king-size I'm going, well, that's a little bit of a problem. We don't have any king size. But this may have to do. And he goes, oh, no, that, that won't do because we can't, we can't sleep on, on a mattress. We've got to sleep on a water bed. Well, also, there were tons of different foods that they wanted. But they, no, we don't eat that. We eat that. Well, in the course of this conversation, we had to leave. Gail had to get over to Mount Vernon, Missouri, where there's a clinic. And we started going to that clinic because they didn't use insurance. And they said, you know, if you want to sue us, go ahead. We don't have any insurance, so you're not going to get any money. But we could pretty much afford it there. So we told them, we've got to get over to Mount Vernon. So we took off. It's 42 miles east. They decided to go with us, but they're going to drive in their van. We get there. We're there for a number of hours. We drive back 84 miles round trip. And then they start saying, well, we've got to have a place to stay. So we've got to get on the phone and start calling people. Where, where can they stay? Oh, I forgot to tell you. The reason we went to Mount Vernon was 30 minutes after they arrived, Gil went into labor. See, 
I told you, this guy was a, not a small leak, but he was a big one. Yell some, she said, oh my gosh, and she went into labor. <laughs> they stuck around even for that. Good people, but exhausting. Really exhausting. Well, I want to tell you about some people that we have in our Bible. I want to tell you a little bit about Saul. Because I think what you're going to find out is I'm not so much talking about people that are a good, solid tire, or people that are overinflated and blow themselves up, or people that have slow leaks. I'm talking about, get ready, us. I'm talking about all of us. None of us are that perfect tire. We're either too much inflated or we got a leak. And some of us, if you're like me, have great big ones that take lots of maintenance. And that's what we're going to talk about today. See, when we think about people, we think about horizontally. What I want to tell us and talk to us about today is not horizontal, it's vertical. Now, if we have God looking at us, are we well-maintained? Are we overinflated or we're leaking? I got news for you. Sometimes we're overinflated and sometimes we're expiring a leak, but we're never just okay. And that's what God deals with day in and day out. Let's illustrate that by looking at Saul. If you look at the 13th chapter of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a little bit of the life of Saul. Now, I've got a lot of scripture to read, but I'm not going to read every bit of it. But here we have Saul, and, and if you recall, Samuel was the one that anointed Saul to be king. Saul was the first king of Israel. Now, we all know that. Actually, that was sort of a slap in the face to God because did God want Israel to have a king? No. God said, I'll be your king. He warned the people, if you have a king, let me tell you, if you have a king, he's going to want taxes and this and that and the other, and it's not going to be easy. They wanted a king, so they got King Saul. He started his reign at 30. Now, if you recall, the mandate that God gave the children of Israel was to, to take the land, the promised land. They were supposed to go in. They were supposed to get rid of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. Why? Because they were an evil, perverted people. And God wanted them eradicated because he was cruel. No, not because he was cruel, but because he did not want the promised land and its people to be contaminated with paganism. So there was a law of, that God gave them. You go and clean out this land. You possess the land. You move them out. Well, Saul started to build an army, but I think his son Jonathan was pretty pro getting this job done. So it says that in verse 3 that Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpets blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Now listen to this. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Well, I'm sure they didn't like the Hebrew people then, did they? Their outpost had been attacked and destroyed by Jonathan. But now the people start getting worried because the Bible says the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. Think with me, if you will, but this new kingdom has a massive army that's coming up against it. 
3,000 chariots. Folks, a chariot was the same as a tank is today. It was an almost unstoppable weapon of war that were built to destroy, to ride down, and to crush. And these people are terrorized. If you want to read the rest of it on your own, go ahead. But it says, Saul remained at Gilgal, but the people were quaking with fear. And that the people had even, uh, they were hiding in caves and thickets and among rocks and in pits and in cisterns. These people are terrified. The hammer's going to fall and it's a coming. Now let's pick it up at the second part of verse 7. It says, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. Okay? Now let me explain a little problem here, and you're going to get it. But in the economy of the Old Testament, the way things worked is you have the king and his authority. But totally separate from that is the priesthood. The priests were the only ones that were sanctioned to touch and to utilize that sacrifice. Now, we think, well, Samuel wasn't there, so he, he did what he had to do. Wrong. He assumed the authority, and he went in and he sacrificed these things himself. Now listen to what is said in verse 11. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings. Okay, now look in the mirror. How many times have we been in a situation where in our spirit we know what God would have us to do, but we feel compelled to do something because God hasn't shown up? That's dangerous stuff. You know, is, isn't it true that God is a last-minute God? Isn't it true that in our experience He's led us along and led us along and led us along right up to almost a moment where it can't work and then He comes through? He tries to build faith, but Saul had a problem. He didn't have the faith. And he felt that he had to do something. He felt compelled. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. <clears throat> I'm not talking about our horizontal relationship. I'm talking about vertical. I'm talking about the time when we short-circuit God's plan because we just don't have the faith. We just don't endure. We just don't say, no, I will not listen to that. I will not be compelled to do what God has ordered in His Word not to do. I will not do it. And that's where we see the power of God. 
<clears throat> if we look a little further, if we go to 1 Samuel 15th chapter, we see actually the end of Saul's reign. He's still the king. But he's going to be a one-man dynasty. His son's not going to sit on the throne. In fact, all his sons are going to be killed. You know, we don't obey God. Sometimes the cost is pretty high. Here it says, and let me read this, starting with verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Now that seems harsh, but he said men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them. And they were going to go to war. Now I want to jump, for the sake of time, down to verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt, and took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive. And all his people he destroyed with the sword. But Paul and the army spared Agag, the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs and everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Now, Saul has had this battle He's won. He's destroyed everything that was of blemish, kept everything that was good, and kept the king Agag alive. Now he goes and he builds himself what? He builds himself a monument to himself. Would you call that an overinflated tire? See, it seems to be going real good. He won the battle, didn't he? So here he's built this monument to himself. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Don't you like that? He's, I, I carried out the Lord's instructions. Aren't you proud of me, Samuel? I did what the Lord said. I love what Samuel said. He had to be a pretty classy guy. I mean, he's, he really is cool. What's he say? But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Can you see his little tongue-in-cheek there? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Isn't that great? Look what we got for the Lord. I love the next verse. Verse 16 is great. Stop! I think, I think Samuel had his fill. Don't you? I have a feeling that his face was red, his beard was quivering. I think he was, he was hot. And he just commanded, stop. Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And still Saul says, well tell me. 
I still think Saul's thinking, yeah, yeah, this is, this is going to be good. Tell me, what did the Lord say? Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. <clears throat> He's still arguing his position. He's still arguing. But Saul replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. <laughs> A little late, don't you think? Would you forgive me now? Boy, I've sinned. Oh, and by the way, I did it because I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. Actually, he wasn't overinflated tire. He was underinflated. He was leaking all the time. He was just doing things his way because he didn't know how else to do them because he would not listen to the word of the Lord. Now I beg you, forgive me. Verse 25. Forgive my sin and come back to me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to leave... Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He is the glory of the Lord. He is the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. This is a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. It's men doing the best they can do and still messing it up. And I got news for you. We're just like salt. We're not much different. And that concerns me because I know I'm just like Saul. I always am tempted to short-circuit God's plan in doing it God's way. And that's spooky. It's scary. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, uh, to uh, Joshua. Joshua, the fifth chapter, starting with the first 13th verse. Now this is a little bit of a twist, but I was reading my personal Bible study the other day, and this hit me like a train. You know how you read a verse time and time and time and time and time again, and you sort of get it. But then one day you read that verse, and it's like a train that hit you right in the back. You didn't expect it, but all of a sudden that verse unfolds like you never saw it before. And you knew all the pieces were there, but the pieces weren't alive. And this verse hit me. 
Let me read this, starting with verse 13 through the end of this chapter. Now when Joshua, and by the way, I think we all know Joshua, but Joshua was one of the men that was faithful to the Lord. He believed in the Lord when they went through, uh, through and tried to acquire uh, the Holy Land. He's one of the ones that went in and said, yes, we can take it. I don't care how big and how powerful they are. We can do it with the Lord's help. And so that was his report along with another man. But the other spies said, no, they're big. They were like grasshoppers to them. You know? And so they doubted and they didn't want to do it. So God did what? Punished them. They walked through that wilderness for 40 years. Joshua was Moses, one of his right-hand men. He was the commander of the army. Moses never made it into the Holy Land. He got to look from a mountaintop and look into it. Joshua got to go across because he was faithful. Now notice this Joshua, this man of faithfulness, and, and listen to what happens. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the Lord, of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. And he asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is probably what's called a Christophany, where Christ appears before Jesus was born. Why would we say that? Because we have something similar to that when Moses came to the burning bush. It's a, a theophany. Theophany. I'll get it right in a minute. And he was told to remove his shoes because it was holy ground. God was there. This is a commander of the Lord's army, and he's saying, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. It was probably Christ Jesus incarnate. He wasn't an angel because he received worship. So chew on that for a while. It'll sort of bend your brain out of shape, okay? But anyway, what amazed me and what we get to get our head around is one important fact. Joshua said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the commander of the Lord's army said, neither. Now church, here's the bottom line on this. It doesn't matter if you think you're an overinflated tire, a perfectly inflated tire, or underinflated, we're all messed up. And God is not on our team. He never said he was on our team. Actually, the question is, for my sermon, if I can find the front page, whose side are you on? That's not our question. That's not the question we ask. It's a question God's asking us. Whose side are you on? See, God's will doesn't change. It doesn't go back and forth. It's solid and true. It's purposeful. It's perfect. And he's asked us to become part of his team. We're not asking him to become part of our petty little team. If we're on his team, it works. Because he makes it work. He's the one in power. So if you're a person that's typically very arrogant and, and, and you know that, then we have to acknowledge that God is his team, not my team. And it's God's will, not my will. And it's God's power and gifting, not mine, that gets it to work. And if you're a person that doubts your abilities, then you've got to understand, no, it's not my team. It's not my job. It's God's job. And I'm on his team. And he'll equip me. And he'll give me talents to do what he wants me to do. Not what I want to do. Not what I aspire to do. 
And that's what's so critically important to us today. Whose side are you on? And the man says, neither. I'm on God's side. Now, are you going to join me or not? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We just thank you. Because sometimes we just need to be readjusted a bit. We need to to refocus a bit. We need to remember who really is at the head of this vessel, this, this thing called ministry, that you are, Lord. You're the one that's leading it. You're the one that's guiding it. It's not our ministry. It never was our ministry. We are to be willing participants in your work. So we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, with your help, that you help us move aside every encumbrance, that you help us to allow you to mend us, to make us into that perfectly inflated tire that rolls and works and does well, that you make us maximize every ounce of our effort and energy, but not for our purposes, but for yours. Now, in the remainder of our time here, Lord, and throughout this week, we pray, Lord, that you would glorify your name and that your purposes will be accomplished through us. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.